Um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Acts. Uh, we're actually doing or beginning a series on 1 Thessalonians, but for the scripture reading this morning, I want to bring us to the book of Acts and read uh, a little bit of, of Paul's first experience with the church at Thessalonica or in creating the church at Thessalonica. Uh, we don't have time to, to read all of it, but what you see is on Paul's second missionary journey, he's coming around and he crosses out of the area of Galatia across to the area of Macedonia for the first time. Uh, he has a vision uh, at night of someone from Macedonia saying, come over here. And so he follows that vision over to the area of Greece and begins to preach there. He goes to Philippi, lands uh, just, just shy of the town of Philippi, goes there and preaches, has uh, success there, but after a while is thrown in prison with Silas. And we get the story of Paul in prison uh, and singing hymns, and eventually an earthquake comes and opens up the jail cells, and the, the jailer, before he's about to commit suicide for letting the prisoners escape, uh, ends up realizing that Paul and Silas are there, and so they then minister to him, and they go to his family, etc., and after, uh, after the Philippi kind of experience, they go to the next town, which is Thessalonica. So we're reading in Acts chapter 17, and it reads this way. I'm in the NIV, and it reads like this. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house and they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil and then they made Jason and the others postponed, and then they let them go. And as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away on to Berea. And then it continues on. It says, the Bereans were of more noble character than those from Thessalonica. And they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But then in chapter 17, verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. And the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we open the New Testament and begin to look at the scriptures, I pray we would be like the Bereans that we would eagerly search out the text, that we would eagerly try and reflect on the tradition that has been handed to us and to see what is true, um, to care about truth enough to search for, uh, to, 
to give our best energy to it. I pray that this morning somehow we would leave a little bit more uh, enlightened as to your purposes for us, a little bit more confident that the hope we have in Jesus is secure. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, Thessalonica, just a little bit about it. If uh, We've got a couple pictures, but Thessalonica is within view. Nope. The... Uh, uh, this is the Arch of Galerius. Uh, so this is where Paul would have walked through with Timothy and Silas coming into Thessalonica. Uh, the other picture shows us on a map, uh, Google map, that Thessalonica, um, biggest, second biggest city in Greece, and was the capital of the province of Macedonia back in that period. And it's within view of Mount Olympus. So Mount Olympus is the big kind of square card there. This is just a screenshot from... Uh, today's, you know, modern version of Google. Uh, But so you had a a view of Mount Olympus from Thessalonica. It's a big city, cosmopolitan city. It was on the the Via Ignatia, which is one of the famous Roman roads that came from uh, up around and then down to Thessalonica, one of the trade routes. You had a major port right there, and it was a free Roman city. A free Roman city um, as opposed to a slave city or a city filled with a lot of slaves and some Roman, uh, free Roman citizens. This was a free city uh, and as such was very cosmopolitan. Uh, so you had a, a large Jewish contingency and synagogue and you had a number of what were called God-fearing Greeks. Now God-fearing Greeks, you'll see that phrase all throughout the New Testament. It's not just a kind of soft little phrase. It was actually a formula uh, for Greek persons who became monotheistic, okay? So in ancient Greece, and ancient Rome, they were pluralistic. The gods were supposed to dwell on the top of Mount Olympus, whether it was Zeus or Apollos or, you know, whether it was the Greek gods or the Roman gods. The, the Romans weren't very creative. They just took the Greek gods and renamed them and, and then kept kind of the same pantheon. Uh, but, but you had many gods that were kind of the dominant worldview of the day. And when people that were coming from that culture, Greeks, non-Jews, were coming from that culture and started to go to the synagogue or started going with the Jewish people and learning from them from the Old Testament, they were becoming uh, monotheistic. And the phrase for those people, the very technical phrase for those people, was God-fearers, okay, God-fearers. So what we see in this text is you have a large contingency in this cosmopolitan city where people are free of persons that are kind of leaving uh, the traditional uh, pluralistic kind of faith and becoming God-fearing Greeks and hanging out uh, around the synagogue with the Jewish people. And as Paul arrives there, he shows up at the synagogue and he begins to preach that the Messiah that's talked about in the Old Testament, the one that's prophesied about, has indeed come. And some of those Jews from the synagogue believe Jesus or believe Paul and kind of go with him. And many God-fearing Greeks go with him. So many of these people that have become, uh, become monotheistic but are not Jewish culturally or ethnically end up going with Paul's message. Because of that, we're told that the Jewish contingency there got very jealous. Now, if you can imagine this, there's a lot of money in a free cosmopolitan city, a port city. Um, the economy of Bend is a really interesting thing. From uh, the, most recent, uh, the most recent census to the one prior to it, 
uh, if I'm getting the statistics right, the average median household income in Bend went down uh, five to six thousand dollars. From 2010 till now, the average median family income in Bend went down six thousand dollars. Why is that? Um, because we don't have a natural kind of economy here that's based on big rivers, large ports, uh, and the transportation that normally drives kind of the economy of, say, a big city. Uh, if you think of San Diego with its harbor, or you think of um, uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area, right? So it's a harder economy to have when it's based on education, healthcare, uh, and tourism, and, and soon to be much more education with OSU coming here. And so you had a lot of money. The point is you had a lot of money, given the fact that this is a free cosmopolitan town, on the major trade routes with a large port. And so when you have a group of people and all of a sudden a lot of them start leaving, there's economic realities that come into play. Money starts going out. Like this is going to affect not just kind of your religious worldview, um, or your community, it's also going to affect the economics that you're enjoying or have been enjoying. And so a, a lot of jealousy gets stirred up, we're told. And so people are going to act on this and get these people thrown out of their town. So they go to the uh, local officials, they, they create an uproar, go to the local officials. And the idea here is that they use a formula, and it's the, the very formula that got Jesus killed by Pontius Pilate. And that formula is that this person is setting himself up, or, or Paul and his followers are setting Jesus up as king, when we all know that the Roman creed on pain of death is that Caesar, uh, and Caesar alone, is king, right? So they're using, they're invoking the very formula that got Jesus killed and saying, this is treason. And treason is punishable by, by death. Yeah, I was watching a documentary with um, Mary Joy recently on uh, Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. And, and the interesting thing about the assassination of Malcolm X at the hands of the Nation of Islam is it is very perplexing to a lot of people. Why would the Nation of Islam go and kill Malcolm X a year after kind of he split from this organization? It just doesn't seem like it makes sense to kind of tear down uh, the, the civil rights movement and some of what was going on there. And in this documentary, uh, they were interviewing a lot of people and, and one of the comments was from Louis Farrakhan who, who simply said, I may or may not have said some things that led to or, or allowed people to think that it was okay to go kill Malcolm X. And then the caveat was you have to understand the Nation of Islam saw itself as a nation. And so the split with Malcolm X from the Nation of Islam wasn't just a split, it was somebody who was committing treason. You see, you see that? When you invoke the word treason, the death penalty just all of a sudden kind of flows out. This is what these people are doing in Thessalonica, is they're invoking treason with the idea that now we can put these people out or, and or kill them, um, because that's what you do for the high crimes against the state, Okay. Uh, and you know you're going to get the magistrates in because if this is a free town, they don't want to, to, um, they don't want to risk drawing the ire of Rome or the emperor that somehow in their freedom they've allowed something to happen in their midst that's going to, that's going to somehow compromise their position as this free state. Okay? So this is what's going on. So um, let's just pick up 
Kip loan me his iPad so that we can draw on this just a bit. So um, this is the second uh, journey of, of Paul. This is the second missionary journey. So um, Paul is starting in Caesarea. He goes back up to where he was based, the home of kind of Antioch, which is where we get our, our church name. And then what he does is he goes back to visit and to strengthen these churches that he has set up in this region that's called Galatia, okay? He's, he's strengthening, he's visiting them for the second time and making sure that these churches are doing okay. He has this dream not to go to Asia, which would have been this way, but to go to Macedonia. And so he goes over to the coast of Troas and then he sails across, lands, and then ends up at Philippi, which we talked about. We did a, a series on the book of Philippians about a year, year and a half ago. And this is kind of the story or the journey that we talked about, that the first place that Paul preaches the gospel, uh, really on mainland Europe, uh, is, is at Philippi. So the, the proclamation of Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Paul was beginning now to take the gospel to, to the, the ends of the earth, the known world of his day. Uh, he gets sent out of Philippi, and he goes through a few cities briefly and stops at Thessalonica. And here's where you see the, the port and this large town of Thessalonica. And um, uh, I'm worried about, I'm just going to, I'm worried about drawing. I make strange shapes sometimes and get in trouble. Um, so we're in Thessalonica. Um, and so what happens is they get expelled from Thessalonica, and they go to Berea. Berea starts out well, but notice it's very close. So this would be like um, us throwing somebody out of Bend, and they go down to Madras, or they, they move on to um, Prineville, or they move on to wherever. And after a little while, we realize that they're down in that place, in that locale, and that they're preaching, and we're still angry that they came here, they messed with our city, messed with our economics, messed with our customs, uh, and these are foreign people. These are not people that are natural to this location. So there's a lot of angst still build up. So, so the ones that feel it the greatest uh, run on down to Madras, run on down to Prineville, run on down to Portland, wherever it is, and they stir up trouble. And they say, don't let these guys stay here. Here's what they're doing. It's not okay. And because of that, uh, now Paul is going to end up leaving Berea as well. Paul is the figurehead. Uh, he's the one that it all kind of centers around because he's the one that stands up as a, as a son of a freeborn uh, Greek who traveled to Jerusalem to study in, in the Pharisaical school and learned, basically became a, a top-notch seminary student in the religious schools of his day, persecuted the followers of Jesus, had his conversion, but this person, Paul, who knows the customs and cultures of the region, but also knows the scriptures, the Old Testament, and, and the Jewish ways, he's the one that stands up in the synagogues. He's the one that goes and preaches at the shores of the river where people are gathering. He's the one that goes stands in the middle of, of the marketplace so that everybody can hear his ideas or what it is he's teaching. So everything's kind of focusing on Paul. So Paul ends up leaving and he goes to Athens. And this is when we see that uh, crazy story of Paul showing up at Mars Hill 
uh, which is right there by the Acropolis. You, you take some of the best pictures of the Acropolis standing on this rocky kind of just um, about the size of this, two or three times the size of the stage, just kind of rocky outcropping lower than the Acropolis. But this is where they would meet uh, in Athens to deliberate, to do judicial things, if you will. And directly across from that little hill is where they would cast their democratic votes. And so all kind of in that little area of Athens and fascinating stories that happen there. But Paul leaves Timothy and he leaves uh, Silas here. He has Timothy and Silas with them because this uh, second missionary journey, right before he leaves on it, is when Paul and Barnabas, so P- Paul and Barnabas' best friends, uh, had done the first missionary journey together, had been beaten, stoned together, had gone through all of these things, and they'd done it with somebody that was related to Barnabas uh, by the name of John Mark. The New Testament Gospel of Mark is written by John Mark, and, and as they're on this kind of journey to bring the gospel, Mark, uh, the, the, the sense is in his youthfulness uh, or inexperience or, or whatever you might call it, ends up leaving them. So he heads back while they're on the first missionary journey. Barnabas, who we know from Scripture, the name actually means son of encouragement. Uh, And he was the first person that saw when Paul was converted that here's a guy that God has reached out to and called, and he brings them into kind of the cool kid club of the early church. And he's this, this, this developer, positive, encouraging person. And so Paul's best friend that he's been with all these years, Barnabas, says, Hey, we're doing a second journey. Uh, John Mark needs to go with us. Paul says, no, uh, John Mark's not going to go with us. And they have such a sharp disagreement that they fall out. And so uh, Barnabas is now going to take John Mark, and they're going to go do something. Paul is going to go back, and he's going to extend even further, and he's going to do the second missionary trip. And he takes with them this guy by the name of Silas. Silas... Uh, between the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey, there were people that had stirred up trouble in Antioch and told them Greeks shouldn't be allowed to be um, a part of the church, this, the, the faith, if you will, unless they become Jews first, unless they're circumcised, unless they go through the rituals and become Jews, and then they can become Christians. Okay, And so this sharp uh, dispute arises The Jerusalem church has what's called the Jerusalem council. They deliberate what is the nature of this good news that we're bringing to people. We've never really dealt with this before, Jews and Gentiles together. How does that work? They affirm what Paul had been preaching when he was in Galatia, and they send a letter of agreement and encouragement up to the church at Antioch and to Paul, and they send that letter with somebody that was uh, reputable, someone that was a leader, someone that, that... They trusted from their midst, and that person's name was Silas, or if you have a a King James or a New King James, it's Sylvanus, okay? Uh, And they send this person up. So you're talking about a a pretty cool dude. Um, So Silas shows up here, and there's this young guy by the name of, of Timothy, and those are the two people that end up going with Paul. And so when Paul leaves Berea to go to Athens, uh, Silas or Sylvanus and Timothy stay behind here in Berea, okay? Paul continues on from Athens, and he shows up in Corinth and brings the gospel to Corinth for the first time. And Paul, I'm sorry, Silas and Timothy end up catching up to Paul when he's in Corinth, okay? Um, And 
what happens is that Timothy brings news from the church at Thessalonica. So obviously, Timothy had journeyed back to Thessalonica, um, checked on the church there. We're told that it was only three Sabbaths that Paul was with that church, basically a month. Okay, so a little over three weeks. So a month before he's driven out of town. So not very long to really firmly ground or establish this church. And so Timothy is going back trying to help them out. And he brings news to Paul of how that church is doing. And so Paul now is going to write a letter. It's called 1 Thessalonians. And he writes a letter to this fledgling church. And he's going to celebrate the fact that they're standing strong. That's why this series is called Hold Fast. He's going to celebrate that, and then he's going to respond to their questions that they have of him. And so all throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, you see a a formulaic phrase called now concerning. So when you get into the meat of the text, you see this phrase, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning your view of when Jesus will come back, Now, now your concern of how you're supposed to live or how you're supposed to be a church. So Paul begins to address the questions that came to him with these kind of now concerning phrases. So if you're reading any of Paul's letters, anything that says concerning, uh, now concerning, in response, any of those things, the Greek underneath it is really this formula, now concerning, and just circle it. And you know really why Paul's writing that letter. He's writing to talk to people, but he's addressing specific people at a specific time in a specific place. And the reason he's addressing those people and what what he's actually wanting to say to them is kind of locked into this now concerning phrase. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Yes. All right. Um, Here's what's fascinating about this. Uh, some, Some scholars believe that the earliest book in the New Testament is the book of Galatians. It's the letter that Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, basically saying that what I taught you about the good news, about the gospel, is true. And don't you let anyone come to you and and hinder that or begin to make you think kind of this legalistic thinking that somehow you have to go back to Judaism. Uh, You've been set free from the law. You're now connected with Christ. That's the theme of the book of Galatians. But most scholars believe that the first letter Paul writes is from Corinth, this letter of 1 Thessalonians, which makes 1 Thessalonians the first book of the New Testament written 20 years after Jesus' death, which is incredibly short. Antioch celebrates in one month our 10-year anniversary, okay? It feels like it just flew by. My daughter turns 15 in two months. Really feels like it flew by. 20 years, incredibly short amount of time, the first book in the New Testament. What's fascinating about that is most of us, even if you didn't grow up Uh, in a Christian home, or in a a strong Christian community, you still probably, or at least might, have some working knowledge of the New Testament. Uh, You might have heard Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You might have heard the word, the Gospels. But, But we have this New Testament that is set up with the Gospels, then the book of Acts that I read from, which is kind of the history of of the post-Jesus kind of era of the church. And then we see uh, the the biggest books of Paul, which is Romans and then 1 Corinthians and kind of on down. And then we get to this little book, one of the the shortest, if not the shortest, that Paul has written, 
And this, it's this letter, 1 Thessalonians, and it's just buried there in the, in the middle of the New Testament. And so as we come to have this, this worldview or this mental picture of the New Testament, we have, we have this kind of pattern of all this content and, and then some little obscure book that we may or may not have heard of, and then it kind of just moves on. But the reality is this small book of 1 Thessalonians is the first book written of the New Testament. It's the first letter. It's even fascinating. If you want, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians. The formula that Paul uses at the beginning here is even interesting. So he does what is typical of Paul, is also typical of letters in that day, but it starts with a greeting, and it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, so the three missionaries, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Um, it's interesting, in other letters, Paul will use the phrase for church, it's a Greek word here, ekklesia, and he will just say, uh, the Corinthian church, or to the church of, of Jesus, uh, of God. But here he uses this interesting formula, to the church of the Thessalonians, who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus. In other words, uh, the word ekklesia simply in Greek means gathering. So the group of people that stoned Paul, or the mob that gathered together or assembled together to chase Paul out of town, those were ekklesias. So Paul is using for the discussion of the gathering of Christians a very, very common uh, Greek word. And so in his very first letter, he has to take that Greek word and he has to give it context. So to the assembly or the grouping, the gathering um, of people, of the Thessalonians that belong to God and to Jesus Christ, may, may, there, may you have grace and peace. So he has to kind of use the whole thing. By the time he's written several letters, he, he begins to, to just shorthand it. And he ba basically is now taking this Greek word, ekklesia, and baptizing it to mean something very specific with regard to the Christian church, the early church. At the beginning, however, he's still finding that language, or that language hasn't been established. So we see it right here in the greeting, this interesting phrase, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we see both parts of Paul here. Grace is the typical uh, Gentile or Greek greeting. Um, and uh, it comes from a derivative of the word joy, uh, charis, and, it, and it's kind of down underneath there. But it's this idea of grace. And the, the Hebrew greeting, which is also um, very close to the Islamic greeting, salam, shalom, uh, means peace kind of a positive, constructive peace, not just the absence of conflict, uh, conflict, peace, like don't fight. That's not what he's, you know, the greeting peace means may things be well with you and may you flourish, right? So he uses this kind of greeting where he brings in both his Greek side uh, and his Roman side and the Hebrew side here as he greets these people. And then he begins to kind of launch into this letter which is really trying to answer for them um, some really big questions. You see, the early church at Thessalonica, um, can I still draw? Early church at Thessalonica uh, was born in suffering. 
It was born in struggle or out of struggle. They only had like a, a couple weeks before the whole thing kind of has the ire of the whole community on them. And they don't even have the, the leader or the, perthen, uh, the person who birthed or began this church. They don't even have that person with them. And, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to live this thing. Uh, and we've got questions we got questions about how we're supposed to raise our kids and, and carry on our day-to-day -day life and should we work or not. Are we waiting for Jesus to come back? Should we just go put down our hammers and wait for Jesus to come back? Or are we still kind of going through the, the motions of laboring and earning money and being a part of society? How do we work together as a church? Uh, how, do we, how do we even rethink sexual morality in, in a culture that had different values than maybe the Jewish culture did and then the Christian culture following it. And they've got these questions. And while they have these questions, they have all this outside pressure coming in on them. They're basically ostracized in their own community. And so here's the interesting thing. It was in South America that what's called liberation theology was born. In South America, you had a Spanish Bible that didn't, doesn't, still doesn't, never did, have the problem that we have with the English Bible. And I say problem because I think it is problematic. We use two synonyms, righteousness and justice, to basically refer to the same thing. And over time, we've allowed ourselves in the English-speaking world to think that there's two ideas here. One is righteous, you know, like my personal purity with God or whatever. And one is justice, maybe something to do with my neighbor. Okay, we've, we've begun to think there's two different concepts when there's only one idea in the Greek behind those two words. In the Spanish Bible, there is no word for righteousness. The word that's, that the, the Greek translates into is the word justicia. So I think liberation theology emerges for two reasons in the 20th century in Latin America. One, because the Bible that everybody was reading is always talking about justicia. And you just cannot read the New Testament and think of everywhere you see righteousness to see justicia show up. You cannot miss this, this idea that somehow the poor or the vulnerable or the oppressed are, are, are a central concern of our faith. Okay? Uh, the second reason is in South America you had, you, you had this crazy thing and it's a long history going back to colonialism, the age of discovery, uh, it's, it's secondary position with regard to the United States, which was a major power. And all these things for several countries in, in Latin America came to this place where you had an aristocracy that owned, in some countries, 80 plus percent of the land held in just a fraction of the people. And you had a working class or you had an, an underclass that could not live with such degrees of poverty and lack of political power because they don't have the resources, the money, or the status in those cultures to affect change, such that people like uh, the Archbishop Oscar Romero um, jumped on board with this idea of, of, we have to understand that these people were the kind of people that the New Testament, that Jesus uh, came to speak to. Jesus didn't come and go find the rich and say, uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to plant myself right here and I'm going to talk to you all for the, for the duration of my ministry because you all are really powerful and influential. I think it's going to be a great, uh, what we could call trickle-down spirituality. Um, and, and it's going to work wonderful and, and it's going to be a part of what uh, we could call trickle-down justice. 
And so we're going to, this is the program we're going to do. Rather, Jesus goes to the poor and the vulnerable and those that have no social status within that culture. And he says to them that the whole idea of the kingdom is flipped upside down. That blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice sake, justicia. Those of you that give your lives away because there are people, fellow brothers and sisters made in the image of God who are vulnerable and oppressed and cannot stand up for themselves. Blessed are you who want to see goodness come, not just to you or your own kind or your own uh, family or tribe, but want to see it come to all people because you value all people. In fact, you're going to be like a Samaritan who doesn't even um, show up or register in your religious kind of conversations. The Samaritans were, uh, in, the, in the religious conversations of the day, the, the people that had it wrong. They were heretical. Uh, I don't want to name religions now, but we could name a bunch of them that we would look at and say, this is just completely off the radar, and you guys got it so wrong. We're not even going to talk to you guys. We think we're so much better than you. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm going to tell you a story about the, the Samaritan and what he does, and then I'm going to tell you the Samaritan's better than you. And Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan in response to a question. Do you know what the question was about? The question was about salvation. What must we do to be saved? And so this is an, a fascinating thing when you see the people of Latin America say, you cannot understand the gospel if you, if you think of it only through the paradigm of convenience, comfort, or wealth. Because it, it was written to an audience, Jesus' words were spoken to audiences, and you have to be able to stand where those audiences were standing and hear Jesus' words to really understand the revolutionary nature of what Jesus was saying and doing. That's what liberation theology says. I want to just pivot off that and say, I think the whole New Testament was written by and large to people or to communities that were struggling. Whether they were oppressed, persecuted, or just wrestling uh, in, in difficult or trying circumstances as to how to figure out what this looks like while not having any help or, or encouragement from the culture around them. It, it's this very difficult reality. And Paul's, uh, the gospel's written to this class. Paul's letters, in some sense, are written to a struggling church. If you are struggling this morning and you're wondering where God is in that struggle or where in the New Testament you can go to read to find encouragement for the struggles that you're dealing with, what I'm telling you is just open up the New Testament. It's written to you. And it's written for now. That in the midst of your struggle, uh, the authentic and honest questions of what faith really is in a messy world, life is messy, and God is mysterious, and somehow in the midst of this, we're supposed to be just and righteous and live by faith, and it's not an easy thing, and it'd be a lot easier to say, let's put down the hammer, isn't Jesus, or won't Jesus just come back sooner? And Paul's answer is no. Um, pick up your hammer, and you work hard, and you wrestle this faith out, not the easy way, but the hard way, walking in that tension between the messiness of life and the mystery of God. Um, if you're struggling this morning, or if you were struggling last week, or if you think you're going to struggle next week and you're wondering what the Bible has to say to you, what I'm, I'm telling you is it's talking to you, period. The New Testament is written 
for people like you or us. And as we go to it, we can begin to feel that encouragement that somehow God understands the tension of life and has seen fit to leave us instruction. So let's just read um, a tiny bit further. And Paul goes on, beginning in verse 2, and he now uh, thanks this thanksgiving. So he's greeted the Thessalonian church and he gives thanks. He says, uh, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. And we remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think there's too much to be made of the differences in these three pieces. Um, work produced by faith and labor prompted by love really kind of is a restatement of the same kind of idea. But what Paul is really wanting to say is there are three large pillars of this faith And they are faith, hope, and love. And here, he puts them in a sequential order. Faith, because we look back at what God has done, and we trust that he will continue to do it forward. Love, in the the moment, we seek to live out in faith what it is we're called to do, the command that Jesus gave us. And hope, as we expectantly look forward to his return, and that all of this will be made right. So Paul gives it the sequential version here of faith, love, and hope. And we see in Romans and in Galatians, and in a couple other uh, First Corinthians, we see it in other places of the New Testament where Paul's going to use the same three concepts, and he does them in, in order of how he would uh, put the importance. And he'll now say it's faith looking back, hope looking forward, but really the biggest thing here is love. Love in the moment is really the thing that's the authenticator, the, the thing that shows that you understand who it is you worship, that you're following Christ, and that, that Christ's likeness is beginning to be born out in you and manifesting in this fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, etc. So it's this fascinating thing as Paul now greets this community and he says, you only had a month. And then you had Timothy come back and visit you. And you have this persecution that's going on around you. And now, months and months and months later, I'm hearing about you and I'm receiving your letter and you're still holding fast. You're still holding fast and I thank God for that. I thank God for that because you are are not walking away or turning aside or like in the book of Hebrews where it says, You know, those who have found it difficult stop meeting together with the other believers because they don't want to be identified with a persecuted class. And so Paul gives thanks, and what he really gives thanks for is their faithfulness, that they are trying to wrestle out what this life of faith is all about. And um, I, I think that's all we can really ask for Um, or say is that we would be able to, in the messiness of life, choose the path of faith and that we would do the hard work of love, sacrificial love, justicia for others, knowing that in our suffering, by the way, I'm 
finishing Ben. Ben thinks I got another 30 minutes. I don't. I'm, I'm finishing somewhere here. Um, just giving you a heads up. Uh, you're in the right place if you're struggling. You're in the right place if you're struggling. And if Paul was writing specifically to you, and he was writing to that follower of Jesus Christ named John or Sally or Susie or Mark um, who is in God the Father and Christ Jesus, Paul would look at you and in all of your wrestling and struggling to try to get it right in the midst of your difficult circumstances, Paul would then quickly give thanks that you're holding fast and that you're trying to make this thing called the Christian life or faith work and then he would begin to, like a, a gentle father, try and give you instruction that would help you live the life that we've been called to live in Christ Jesus. That's the beautiful thing that we get to jump into and are jumping into um, as we start in this series. It's going to go all the way through November. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, text. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for people like Paul and modern-day Pauls who will get outside of themselves and give their lives away, love sacrificially so that others might be able to stand firm. Father, even if it's hard, we recognize that you understand and know our struggle and our suffering, that we are not left alone in it, that you are not silent in it. There's a whole New Testament written to us that we might be able to take heart, that we might be able to have instruction on how to live. So we thank you. And we pray that in Christ's uh, Christ name. Amen.